All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. We pray that you speak to us tonight through this, this, uh, this series of events in, in the Gospel of Luke. Amen. The capital had its face set against Katniss Everdeen. You know where we are. We're in the dystopian world of the Hunger Games, a world where selected youth from a, a poverty-stricken nation, Panam, get selected to the, for the battle to the death reality TV show. So the one survivor gets security and safety for the family and themselves. So fast-forwarding to the Hunger Games, Movie 2, Catching Fire, the main character, Katniss Everdeen, is forced to compete again. So she, along with Peter in the, at the end of uh, Movie 1, outwitted the power-hungry capital. And so the, the, the power-hungry capital changed the rules and forced them to compete again. Katniss had to compete again. And the ridiculously rich, with ridiculous fashions, uh, the, the capital have devised an arena, an island, that was meant so so that, it was designed so that Katniss would not be able to get out alive. So I don't know if you remember, if you've seen the movie, uh, this arena, this island had poisonous uh, fog, it had deadly birds and insects, and it had on-demand flooding. The picture of the island there and the, the, the deadly birds on the bottom left. The arena was one big trap set up by the establishment, by the capital, to make sure Katniss wouldn't get out alive. So over the past few weeks, in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Jesus also upset the establishment, uh, the corrupt and power-hungry religious leaders of his time. And Jesus' opposition to them has been ramping up in previous chapters. So first, uh, first, Jesus entered the capital, Jerusalem, and he entered on a donkey's colt. And the people, were, the crowds were saying, King, Lord. And the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees didn't like it because Jesus didn't tell them to be quiet. And so last week, then Jesus uh, entered the camp- temple and he cleared the temple. And he called the leaders of the temple uh, uh, corrupt. They'd made his, uh, the Father's place of prayer a place of robbery and deceit. But Jesus wasn't done yet. Uh, last week, there was the parable of the wicked tenants. So, uh, and you remember that the, the parable was dangerously clear. The wicked tenants in, in the parable were the religious leaders. They'd done ridiculous evil and they were just about to do it again. And then... Chapter 20, verse 19, finishes like this. It's sort of a summary. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. So they were too afraid to arrest Jesus. And so they tried to trap Jesus. You might remember last week they already tried that with John the Baptist. And that went badly for them. But they think they've devised two traps that would just be inescapable for Jesus. And we're going to see uh, these two traps here. They're they're like the capital and their island trap. They didn't want to let Jesus get out of these traps alive. So look with me at verse 20 of Luke chapter 20. Uh, Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. 
They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Notice a flattery. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, of course, this is a trap. If Jesus says, yes, it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, then the zealots amongst the Jews will put Jesus on the top of their hit list. The zealots didn't like Caesar and neither did most of the Jews. So if Jesus said yes, then the crowds would probably turn against him. But if he said, no, it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar, then they'd have clear evidence that there was a Jewish revolutionary in their midst and the leaders could just ask the Roman officials to arrest him. It was a perfect heads-you-win, tails-I-lose situation. So how will Jesus both hang on to truth and yet avoid being trapped? How will Jesus hang on to truth yet avoid being trapped? Now, Anthony Bundeen's been in the news lately. Um, he didn't fare too well on Friday night. But when he was playing for the Dragons back in the day, when I was a big follower, when he saw a gap, I don't know if you remember, he'd, he'd make his way through it. He'd, he'd find a way through. But in this question, there's, there's no gap. It's yes or no, he's caught. Well, that's what they think. Verse 23. Jesus saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. So here's a picture of denarius. You'll notice it has the image of the Caesar on it. And it says, Tiberius Caesar in, in Greek, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So Tiberius Caesar, yes, son of God. That's, that's sort of what it's saying. And so Jesus asked, whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they answer. Or well, he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public and were astonished by his answer. So they became silent. So maybe round one to Jesus. But let's look in slow motion. I'll give up with the sporting um, uh, analogies in a moment. Um, let's, let's, let's look at that answer in slow motion. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Let's, let's focus on that answer. Jesus' point is, that because the coin has Caesar's image on it, then it makes sense to give it back to him. But then he says, give to God what is God's. I'm not sure if you're seeing the, the, the genius in the answer, but who has God's image? Humanity has God's image. Man and woman will create it in God's image, in his image God created us. So give the coins back to Caesar. Yeah, they're, they're his. They've got his image. Fine. But more importantly, give to God what is his yourselves to the people he was speaking to you're created in god's image give yourselves heart mind and soul to the one who created you so jesus's short answer has a bit of a, a pointy end to it and i don't think he's just saying that because god owns you because god uh, created you um you you should give yourselves to god i think that's correct but i think there's more to it i want you to imagine being five years old and on a train station waiting for a brother who said they'd just be a few moments. They wouldn't be long. And so the next thing you know is that uh, you, you've found a, um, an empty train because this brother is taking a lot longer than he said he would. And you're tired on this train. You, you're looking through the train, looking for your brother because you're just lost. You're not sure where he is. 
And you end up having a sit-down on this train because you're tired. And then it's the next morning. And the train's moving fast, away from where you were, away from where your brother said he'd meet you, and you end up in destination unknown. Now, this is the plot of an Australian movie called Lion. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's a true story. Uh, The little five-year-old boy um, who grew up in India, his name was Saru, and he ended up in Calcutta, which is 1,600 kilometers from um, where his brother had left him. The movie's all about Saru's long journey back home. From an Indian orphanage um, where he ended up in, in Calcutta, he He was adopted by an Australian family in 1987, but it's not until his mid-twenties that he decided that he'd like to return home. He'd like to return to his roots. Now, this is a spoiler alert. He ends up using Google Earth to find his home village back in India. And so 25 years had passed since him being lost, and he ends up in the village where he grew up. Uh, a man approached him and, and his eyes widened at, at, at Saru's approach. The, uh, Saru sh- showed him a picture of his mum and, and, and the man's eyes widened again and, and, and didn't speak, but you could tell he, he, he recognised the picture. And so the man asked Saru to follow him and he led Saru to a group of women walking um, home. And they were old women and, and clearly one was Saru's mother. Saru went up to the mother and showed, him the, uh, showed her the picture and she recognised her son and they both started to cry. They embraced. So why am I telling you this story? I think Jesus' answer to the religious leaders, give to God what is God's, isn't just saying he has the rights over you. I mean, he does. He created you. But I think there's a fittingness to our being given back or giving ourselves to the creator in whose image we were created. Just as Saru had a yearning to return to his family, those in his likeness, if you like, giving ourselves to the God in whose image we were made is like a hand returning to its glove. It's like an animal returning to its natural habitat. It's like Saru returning to his family. We were created to give ourselves to God. Our souls find rest in him. But I think there's more to Jesus' answer than that. So not only does Jesus say, give yourselves to God, the one who created you, the one in whose image you were created, he also doesn't delegitimize the government, even the relatively corrupt government that the Roman government was. Now, this was a fine line to walk, as I sort of gave the impression before. Uh, There were two sort of basic views. You were either aligned with the government. They were the Sadducees. We're going to meet one in a second. Or you rebelled against the government in this time because they were oppressive and you were like a zealot. You'd rebel against the government. But Jesus didn't fall into either of those two camps. Jesus walked the fine line, which was recognizing the legitimacy of the government whilst also seeing its limitations. And I think this is instructive for us. Um, We live in a world that's fracturing into the right and the left How can we, as Christians, think about how to interact with the state in this world? There's so much that could be said here, but I'm going to sort of stick to the sketch that Jesus gives us. First, Jesus says in his answer, or infers, that the state has its 
legitimacy give to Caesar what is Caesar's? We know in Romans 13 that the state is God's servant for our good. God delegates his authority to secular governments to keep public order. And order is definitely better than chaos. And our submission to God is expressed in our submission to the governments. I'm not saying there's not room for peaceful protesting or anything like that. But our submission to the government is expressed by our prayerfulness for the government. That's why we pray for the government regularly at St. Mark's. It's, um, it's expressed in our respect for politicians, which is countercultural in Australia. And it's also expressed in our um, honesty in paying taxes, etc. So the state has legitimacy and we should, we should act as if that's the case. It's, it's put there by God. But also, Jesus' answer teaches us that the state has its limitations. The state has a role to play, keeping public justice, public order, but that's about all. The state should never lay claim of us, lay claim of us and our own loyalty. Give to God what is God's. Now, if we were living in North Korea or maybe even China, me saying that would be a dangerous thing to say. Um, in those countries, the state has transgressed its um, God-given role. But I think even in Australia, the labels left and right are becoming even more demanding, demanding of us. And what I mean by this is that I think there's an increasing pressure, especially in our generation, uh, to give ourselves to either the right or the left. So if you align to the left, it's assumed you'll just take all of their opinions on board, you're sort of a lefty and you'll agree with everything they say and it's the same for the right. But giving ourselves first and foremost to God will make it impossible to fully embrace any agenda other than God's. We'll likely have views that um, fit more towards the left and views that maybe fit more towards the right. And, and some views that we have as Christians, the left or right, will have no idea what to do with. But the point is that only God has claim over us, not the left or the right, which means our opinions aren't told to us by the left or the right. We think through issues case by case and we have different priorities. We're members of God's kingdom We've given ourselves to God. And so there'll be parts of the left and right that we'll embrace. But God has us. And it's his kingdom that we are seeking after. But let's return to the passage. Jesus has managed to slip through the first trap and in the process sort of thrown at, their, at them a truth bomb. In verse 26, they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now it's time for round two, uh, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second um, and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? 
It's a bit of a riddle, isn't it? They think they've trapped him. The Sadducees were the wealthier amongst the Israelites. They were wealthy and they were uh, in cahoots with the Roman ruling class. They were pretty high up in the echelon. Which meant they couldn't take their religion too seriously. They didn't want to upset the status quo. And for the Sadducees, the idea of resurrection was ludicrous. They only adhered to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And according to them, uh, there was no resurrection in the Torah. And so they said it was uh, heresy to believe in the resurrection. And so they were either trying to make Jesus speechless in, um, in front of this riddle, in the face of this riddle, or they were trying to get Jesus to say, yes, there is a resurrection, and so prosecute him on grounds of heresy. That's what they're trying to do. So how will Jesus answer? He's not left speechless, and he does affirm the resurrection, but he does it in a way that catches them off guard. He does two things in his answer. First, he makes the point that the resurrection life won't be the same as the, uh, the present one. The resurrection life won't be the same as the present one. So you follow with me. Verse 34, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Now, there's so much to unpack there, but the Sadducees, I think one of the main points is that the Sadducees can't imagine how resurrection will fit into the way things presently are. They can't imagine how things will, uh, the resurrection will fit into the way things presently are. Um, and here's an old college joke. Because they don't believe in the resurrection, they're sad, you see. <laughs> They couldn't imagine how the resurrection would fit into the way things currently are. And it's as if Jesus is saying, you're too content with the present. Open up your imaginations. The resurrection isn't a puzzle piece that fits into the puzzle as we see it now. In this age of um, sort of characterized by death. The resurrection isn't a puzzle piece that fits into the puzzle we see now. It's a puzzle, a puzzle piece that needs a whole new puzzle. The resurrection fits into an age that's characterized by endless life, where marriage has served its purpose. It's a life we don't see now. It needs an entirely new puzzle. So the first point is that Jesus makes is that the resurrection life won't be the same as the present one. The second point he makes, well, actually, the second thing he does is ram home that reality using the scriptures that they respect. So like I said, they, uh, they only look to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And so he turns to Exodus to, to make his point. So um, from verse 37, But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. So Jesus has shown that the basis of their question is wrong, assuming that the way things are now will always be the same, and he does that using the scriptures they respect, they look to. And so some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
Now, before I close, I think sometimes we're a little like the Sadducees. We're either a little too comfortable in the present, like the Sadducees. They were sort of high up in the echelon. They, they didn't want to upset the status quo. They were focused on this age. And I think we too, living in prosperous freshwater, live according too easily to the priorities and values of the people around us. We sort of make happiness and, and comfort our, our main goal in life. And we don't see a horizon beyond. And I think this is all of us to some degree. It's sort of uh, just a part of living in our culture, a culture obsessed with the now, not the future. But Jesus is saying, this age mustn't be your home. Uh, You children of God, children of the resurrection, your home is in the age of the resurrection, the future. So we mustn't be too comfortable in the present, but also we must avoid letting the norms and expectations of this age creep into how we perceive the age to come. We can become so used to this age where good times last a moment and then they're over, where life can be so tough. It's just hard to imagine a future without pain and tears. We need to remember that our future is a completely different age. It's, it's like using the puzzle analogy. It's a completely different puzzle with a different picture on the top of the box. The picture on the top of the box is bright and, and blazingly luminous. It's impressive. But the categories we have now mean that we can't, just, we can't really see what's being pictured on it. It's a whole new thing. We need not lose sight, well, we need not to lose sight of how great our future will be in this future age. And so, we started with the Hunger Games, an attempt by the capital to capture Katniss Everdeen in that trap island, and we end with Jesus finding his way through two traps that the religious leaders had assumed couldn't be beaten. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware, but today's the beginning of Advent. Um, It's the beginning of the the season we're meant to prepare our hearts and mind for Christmas Day. God's coming amongst us on Christmas Day. This series in in the Gospel of Luke has been at the end of Jesus' life. We're in the final week of Jesus' life, which seems a little bit confused in terms of the church calendar. But I think it's actually helpful for us to look at the end of his life to help us prepare for his coming to us at Christmas. Jesus, from his birth to his death and resurrection, has been a challenge to everyone who's come upon him. And that must be the case. This is the holy God come amongst us. He is a challenge to everyone. And the question is, will we embrace the challenge? This Christmas, will we again put this Son of God come to us at the center of our life? The cornerstone from a couple of weeks ago. Or will we fight back against the challenge? Will we love our own control of life as opposed to letting him have control? I mean, that's what was happening here with the religious leaders. They didn't like Jesus' agenda. They didn't like what it might mean for them and their power and authority. Either way, whatever we might choose to do, Jesus can't be trapped. And although Jesus will make his way up a hill, he won't be forced. He'll do it in his own time. 
He'll make his way up a hill and give his life. And he'll do that for the sake of the world. I'm going to pray using a prayer that is in your service outline. It's a prayer for the first week in Advent. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, make us watchful and keep us faithful as we await the coming of your Son, our Lord, that when he shall appear, he may not find us sleeping in sin, but active in his service and joyful in his praise. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.